Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Kirsty Logan. Welcome to our shelves, Kirsty. It's so lovely to have you on the show today. Hello, it's so lovely to be here. Kirsty's books include Now She Is Witch, Things We Say in the Dark, The Gloaming, The Gracekeepers, A Portable Shelter, and The Rental Heart and Other Fairy Tales. She lives in Glasgow with her wife, baby, and rescue dog. And this month, Virago is publishing her new book, The Unfamiliar, A Queer Motherhood Memoir. Kirsty, it's so great to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. So The Unfamiliar is a memoir and it details some of what I can only presume from reading it are your most kind of intimate and very personal experiences, both positive and negative. And yet one of the things I found most fascinating about this book is that you write it uh, in the second person using you, not I. And I know you pick up a little bit on this towards the end of the book. So this isn't a sort of spoiler or anything like that. But I'd love if you could tell me a little bit more about this, because to me, that sort of the second person always implies a sort of sense uh, a state of distance or remove and when people use it when they're talking about these very intimate things I'm always fascinated yeah I feel like just that one thing is this sort of very uncomfortable insight into my psyche Uh, I feel like everyone's like (laughs) becoming my therapist by by discovering this about me because that actually wasn't my intention um when I was thinking about the book I had planned to write it in first person because that Mm. made sense that's how memoirs are written And I just couldn't do it. Um, I'm used to writing fiction. And my fiction is, I think, very personal and very based on my real life, but always with this very, very heavy layer of the fantastical and of metaphor. So in in Things Mm. We Say in the Dark, I wrote a lot about pregnancy, my fears around pregnancy and parenthood. But it was always weird. Like I had a story about someone who's pregnant with different kinds of fruits and vegetables and they're going to give birth to their (laughs) fruits and vegetables. Or I had a story about someone who's pregnant and the baby just keeps growing for like years and years and years and they just become like enormous so it was sort of talking about myself but it obviously wasn't real I obviously wasn't pregnant with a vegetable so it was was fine (laughs) so to actually say no this is true and this is real and this is not not even what I felt but what I did and what I said Mm. um I am a very anxious person and I am the type of person who like goes over and over things that I've said. So as soon as I leave a social situation, even with a very close friend, I sort of pick over everything and I think, oh, why did I say that? To the point that like a couple of my closest friends, when we leave, if we had, we've had a night out, they'll text me right away. Mm-hmm. But like, that was really fun. You didn't say anything stupid. <laughs> I had a great I love time. It. They know you so well. They know they need to get in there quickly before anyone yeah, before, before your mind like, starts working. Yeah, exactly. Before I can, I think of it as like you know, on the news, there's like a little ticker tape along the bottom. Yeah, like the kind yes. of the okay. scrolling anxiety along the bottom of the page um, of my brain. Um, so yeah, I think the second person, it just that's just how I started writing it, and I thought, well, I'll draft it like this, and I can always change it to the more traditional first person when I was finished, and then. It just started to feel right. And I think the book ended up being, obviously it is mostly about this this, um, journey to parenthood and um, all the (laughs) the anxieties uh, involved in that. But it ended up being more about 
the writing process than I expected and more about the process of writing about myself and my life and what that means and why we do that and what it means to do that and how does it change how we experience things when we know that we're going to write about them because it was quite early on in the process that I decided to write about it and actually the book ended up being very very different than what I planned because originally um my working title was The Other Mother, which I wouldn't have used anyway, because there's another very good book with that title. Um, but it was <laughs> going to be about me being the non-birth mother um, of a right. child, because my wife was going to carry the baby. Um, that was what we both wanted. That's what we planned. That's what we did for years and years and years. And as anyone who has tried to get pregnant, whether successfully or unsuccessfully, will know, your body does not do what you want it to do um, sometimes. Yeah. sometimes it just is it just is what it is so it ended up that um, my wife didn't carry the baby and um, it was me in the end so then it became a book about being the birth mother when that was not what you thought your journey was going to be mm. um so it kind of became about your body a disobedient body or a, a, a life that doesn't quite follow the track that you think it will and how I, I am a firm believer there's a phrase um in Glasgow although I'm sure other people say it which is what's for you won't go by you um, which is okay. you do you do kind of get what you want and need, but it's almost never in the form or in the time scale that you think. Um, mm. It just just doesn't work out. I think things do always work out. They just don't work out quite the way that you think. And, you know, I'm a real control freak, so I don't like that. I did not <laughs> like that life lesson. Um, and that was another thing I learned actually through this whole journey was um, I, I was forced to learn to be less controlling, which I didn't enjoy. Wow. I, it was not okay. a lesson that I wanted to learn, um, although I knew I needed to, um, but it made me. Um, so yeah, it's funny, this this second person thing, it was for me a way to try and distance myself. And I think every time I write, even when I write fiction, I have while I'm writing, I have to tell myself that no one will ever see it. I have mm. to say, this is the this is the practice one. Sometimes I even write like in an email draft um, to Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it's not even as, as sort of official on the page. Yeah, it? I just sometimes I have to tell myself this is this is the pretend bit. This is the practice. And usually that mm. does end up being actually the, the final version. Yeah, but I have to fool myself. And I think I did the same with this. I was like, well, I'll just I'll draft it second person. I can change it later. Okay. Um, so yeah, and does that? I presume that sort of that drafting process as well, more generally allows you a sort of freedom, right? And an ability to be more truthful or kind of to go places that you kind of think well I might revise this later I might sort of you know pare back a little bit or that but actually sometimes that then presumably becomes the real deal at the end of it and you've got everything there on the page yeah absolutely because I think if you think too much about people reading it or for me anyway if I think too much about people reading it I would never write anything um yeah <laughs> I just this was the big difference for me between first book and second book first book um was written in this state of kind of invisibility which was quite yes. I mean it's horrible in one way because I had written like three books that couldn't get published rightfully so because okay. they weren't very good but I kind of thought well here we go again and sometimes I get asked yeah. what was it like to write your first book and I thought well I didn't know it was my first book I thought I'm going to try this again probably no one will want it again but I'll give it a go um so I, I try and get back to that feeling that feeling of well Probably no one's ever going to read this. So I'm just going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to say what I think is important to say. Um, and then it is, you do get this moment of horror, self-inflicted horror, when the book like <laughs> goes out into the world. And I do sometimes have a moment when a complete stranger says, oh, I read your book. I really loved it. And I kind of feel like, but that that's only on my laptop. How mm. how did you read the how did you read my diary essentially? And of course, you know, yeah. I've made the choice to put it out into the world, but I think I have to do it that way. I don't know if that's gonna change. I'm still fairly early on in my career, so maybe in time I'll become more self aware, but um I can't I just can't write from that place of self awareness. It'd be interesting to see if you do change over time or if it always stays the same. And maybe it will because it's could have been like this and you've already published quite a few. Maybe that's just the way that you write in that sense. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think I just I do a lot of tricking myself when I write. <laughs> I have to convince myself of certain things that I know aren't true, like nobody will read this or um, I have to 
trick myself. Um, I can never hold a whole book in my head at once either. Um, I think I'm more of a short story writer naturally. Um, so I have to kind of think, no, this is just a series of small stories. This isn't just one big, huge story. And with, with this one, with The Unfamiliar, that was a that was a purposeful choice. Um, I was very inspired by the book, The Department, uh, Department of Speculation by Jenny Offill which is written, yes. as I'm sure you know, in these sort of tiny little sections. And certainly for me, um, when the baby was just newborn, and because when I was pregnant, I was so anxious as well, I could only focus on very small things. Um, I watched right. a lot of like music videos <laughs> on YouTube because I couldn't watch a film because I just couldn't focus for that long. Um, yeah, yeah. So I liked books, you know, flash fiction or short stories that were very short and I could kind of just get through in very small chunks. So for me, that's how I was writing. You know, when when the baby was tiny, I could hold a thought for like about the length mm. of a paragraph and that was about it because I was just so exhausted and <laughs> remain exhausted, to be quite frank, even though, you know, we're two years, nearly two years into this now. Um, so it was that. And I also thought, you know, my target market is basically people with young children um, who are equally exhausted. Right, attention spans are going to be, <laughs> yeah. yes, they're going to have the same sort of problems. And I thought, you so. know, you can read a section of this, like while the kettle's boiling or while yeah. the baby's distracted playing with a toy or, you know, anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that was my that was my goal anyway. Interesting. That sort of brings me to another thing I was going to ask you about, because I, I what something I found very interesting was about halfway through the book, you acknowledge that people often rather indignantly say that there aren't any books about motherhood and that but that you know and these are things that are being written new and fresh these days but then you say that you don't think that's true and you add this long list of like brilliant authors who've written about this and you say that women writers you know have have written about motherhood they are writing about motherhood and maternity and then you say something like you know perhaps the problem is that people uh, no one is talking about it because a lot many people are listening to these books not many people are reading these books and i found that so fascinating because i feel I feel sort of very similar. I've always wondered about this. There seem to be so many books about motherhood at the moment, brilliant books and, you know, very important and really interesting and doing lots of different things with it. But I am always slightly kind of confused by this sort of statement of fact that these books don't exist because they have always existed. I mean, you know, you can look back to the middle of the century and there are women writing about this stuff, but I think people just don't read it, do they? I mean, And I wondered if you could say something a little bit about that because you, you sort of admit, you say readily like, well, I wasn't interested before I started to think about becoming a parent and what this would mean to me and how my life would change yeah I mean yeah I'm certainly not trying to point the finger at anyone I'm, I'm in the same boat oh, yeah. no, sorry, I didn't mean to that. <laughs> yeah no I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely the same you know I and to be honest I did start to get interested in books about parenthood but then because we were trying to get pregnant and it took us years it took us um, probably about six years altogether to to get our child yeah long time so well, I acquired a lot of these books and I couldn't bear to read them even though I knew they were great and even though a lot of them were right. by writers that I knew personally and admired very much I couldn't bring myself to read them and to be honest the reason why is that they had a baby I knew that they had a baby because that's why they were writing a book about parenthood and I couldn't handle the envy I was so I was so angry I've never been so angry as the period of time when we were trying and failing to get pregnant and to to carry a pregnancy to term I say we obviously my wife experienced things in her body and in her mind that I can never know I can never know how she experienced that I can only know what what I experienced as as the other parent um but yeah there were lots of these books and I wanted to read them and I was very interested in them but I couldn't I simply couldn't and I actually around that time I had to say no even to some proofs that were novels about parenthood because I thought I can't wow. I just can't I just it doesn't matter to me how brilliant this book is my yeah. my rage and my envy is such that I simply cannot um and I didn't resent um anybody for you know having a child because I knew myself how how intense that desire was in me I just couldn't I just couldn't bear it because I knew that they had a child and it was that certainty that I really really envied I envied and it seemed to me like when I finally did read these books there wasn't level of certainty there was this certainty of the pregnancy means a baby and for most of my life I thought a pregnancy meant a baby and of course that is absolutely not the case and I also highly doubt that the authors of these books actually felt that certainty um, because I felt just completely um, a bizarre person because I was so anxious of miscarriage and stillbirth the entire time 
And quite a lot of people I've spoken to since then said, oh, yeah, me too. No, every single day I was completely terrified. And I thought, why did nobody tell me that? And there are a lot of people talking about various things. I do feel like there are a lot of things that nobody told us or if they did tell us, we weren't listening. We didn't want to hear it. Mm. Um, and there are lots of things. And I do think so, someone described this book as like, it's a very body book. Um, there's, yes, a lot of, there's lots of kind of body stuff that nobody really told me about. My wife said this as well. She went through IVF treatment. And there were lots of elements that people did tell her about this treatment. But there were lots of elements that nobody told her about. Yeah. She was like, why did nobody say this? Why did nobody tell me this? So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff about the actual kind of nuts and bolts of how do two cis women have a baby? What, what's the process? Where do you get the sperm from? What's the, and this was a real issue as well, um, being so very British and so very polite. Um, it became like a real issue. Like, <laughs> if someone has given you some sperm, like uh, what's the etiquette to say thanks? Yeah, how, yeah, how do, you do, do you have a cup of tea together? What do, do you do? Like, <laughs> or like, should I get them a gift? Or like, what, what yeah. kind of gift is appropriate? Or... <laughs> thank you card do you know what maybe that will happen the thank you for the sperm cards oh yeah that it. would be a good line of cards right greetings cards of every occasion basically yeah. <laughs> thank you for coming around to my flat and doing this i know we're not the only people who need to know how do we say thanks, yeah. for, the, thanks for the sperm because i mean it's it's yeah. a great gift and we're incredibly grateful um to our donor we actually had two donors um one donor uh, we ended up not um getting anywhere with that although you know not for want of him trying and giving us his precious time and sperm which is you know yeah not for want of his absolutely not he tried very hard but um, (laughs) we did we did um go with a different donor in the end and I just am so grateful to both of them I think Mm. they both gave us such an incredible gift um you know there was no benefit I mean the first donor bless him lovely amazing guy he didn't even get you know the joy of like there being a baby at the end because I always think well surely that's that's why someone would do this because you think well something that causes me no pain or hardship it's just a use of my time something that I might be doing anyway and I get to give this gift presumably they do it because there's a there's a sense they're going to give you something and you're going to get something that you really want out of it right and you're going to be and they're going to be able to see that baby with the parents being really happy and that kind of the family that they've helped complete and that's got to be lovely right absolutely yeah he didn't if you don't have that yeah yeah so I'm very grateful um to both of them I actually think it's a really incredible gift and I think we often talk about blood donation or even bone marrow Mm. even organ donation we talk about a lot and I do think those are incredible yeah. gifts as well. But sperm donation, we don't really talk about. And I think um, it's just such a beautiful gift. Yeah, I think those elements of this that I, were exactly what I was intrigued by and, and very interested that, you know, the, the process of, yes, getting pregnant, but also your very visceral description of the birth itself, things like that, that, again, I think are not written about, you know, people talk about, they might write about motherhood, they might write about parenthood. Um, but maybe they don't go into those sorts of details. And and I was thinking as well a little bit, maybe a little bit about that, but also in terms of what you were saying just now about people sometimes not talking about the process of, um, you know, going through multiple miscarriages or not being able to conceive in the first place. And I wonder if um, a lot of the time, do you think it's that sort of sense of that once you've got there, once you maybe have got the the baby that you're then going to write about for some people, they sort of forget some of that hardship along the way because they're so... I don't know. It's like your whole world changes, doesn't it? And like this is, and this is sort of beautiful and very exciting part of your life that begins. And maybe there's an element of sort of not wanting to go back into those quite hard, dark days. I don't know. Yeah, I completely agree. I do. And that's why I'm actually glad that I broke um, one of the biggest rules of memoir, which is that you should only write about something when you have some distance from it. And I don't disagree Mm -hmm. with that rule at all. Um, Often when you write memoir, you're told you have to wait until you're through something and you can look at it from a distance and you can be objective and you can see what it means rather than just saying this happened and then this happened and then this happened. You have to be able to find some kind of meaning in it. So I don't disagree with that, but I actually wrote the book very quickly after the experiences. And it's a funny thing, the book, again, much like having a baby, on the one hand, took six years, but on the other hand, took less than a month, because it took me six years to make all the notes and plan everything. Mm. But the actual writing, because I had a six month old baby at that point, um, was very quick. Um, I I I went on um, two separate weeks away, two separate residencies, and just worked 
flat out work like 12 hours a day um because that's what i had that's what i had available to me um so on the one hand very very quick book on the other hand very very long book took a very long time and i took very <laughs> very extensive notes because as i said i thought i wanted to write a book about being the non-birth mother um which at the time i hadn't found there are some books out about that now but at the time there weren't um, any out and there are also books which I couldn't find at the time which are out now about being um, a trans and non-binary parent which I think is really interesting yeah. and is not an experience that I can personally speak to but fabulous books about that um, so I kept very extensive notes and I'm very glad I did that and particularly the birth um, I wrote that so as it is in the book it's almost exactly as I wrote it in my notes and I wrote, apart from that, I changed it to, to second person. And um, I wrote it on my phone, like in the in the labor ward, sort of at, at four in the morning or whatever oh the time gosh. was with the, with the baby asleep. Because I thought I need to write this down because I'm going to forget. And I yeah. I wanted to forget because it was um it was a te- it was not a good birth, I will say. Um, although physically, thankfully, I've had no kind of after effects, and the baby was absolutely oh. fine. Um, but my whole pregnancy was absolutely fine. Not a single issue through my whole pregnancy, and then the birth just. It didn't go very well. Um, And I think the thing is, if I hadn't made all those, because even when I was writing up the notes and sort of editing them, I kept thinking, oh, it can't have been that bad. Come on. You're fine. Mm. You know, the baby's fine. That's just what birth is like. And I think I I did stick to what was in the notes. You know, when I was saying I genuinely thought that I was going to die and I was afraid, I was terrified. I've never been so afraid in my life. And it's very hard to write about pain because we forget pain. I think childbirth, particularly, our brains make us yeah. forget it. Um, but I think any... Well, otherwise people we would never do it no. time round, don't they? I remember right <laughs> after birth, I was like looking at people with more than one child and thinking... They'd be like, what? You, like, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. You knew and you still did it again. And like, now I get it. Now I've got a bit of distance. Like, yeah. um, I, I get why people have, have more than one child. Because um, you do. It is worth it. You know, it's, that seems a very easy phrase. Because that's the thing. Even if you have a very difficult birth, I totally understand why people don't want to talk about it, don't want to get into it. And there is a thing that it just gets kind of whisked away, like, oh, but you're fine now. The baby's fine now. Mm. And we even do that ourselves. I say it. I say, oh, I had a really awful birth, but everything's fine now. I'm like, yeah, it's fine now. But also that doesn't mean that it wasn't a trauma or it didn't happen. And I found myself yeah. making it a story and making it almost funny. Like I was in the group chat with emojis, like telling my friends about all the, the blood and the gore and the puke and the poop and like the, I was, it was like uncontrollably um like shaking like so I could hear yeah. like my body shaking off on the bed you know and I would sort of make it as if it was a horror story as if it was a ghost story you know like when you sit at a sleepover when you're a kid and you like to mm. try and freak each other out it was like well it's a way of processing yeah. it I suppose as well right especially for you as a writer like you're going to want to turn it into something and I guess turning it into a sort of manageable narrative that you have control over because you're saying it's funny you're saying it's kind of you know creepy is different to the fact that fundamentally from reading that section what I got the sense of was the sort of sheer horror and upset and trauma of being in a situation in which you actually had no control over what your body was doing no control to how that birth was going to go even if you'd had you know ideas in and you're just being this sort of you know literally this visceral body on the table that was not sort of working in the way that you wanted it to work and you know you you had I don't know that I think then that's also from a lot of my friends who've had babies that's a lot of what they talk about if they've had sort of more traumatic births it's the idea of the lack of control I think that is a real problem yeah and I understood that I wasn't going to be in control but to me how it felt I'm sure it didn't seem like that to anyone else at the time but it felt like nobody was in control of it it felt like Mm. nobody was knew how to to do this knew how to be in control of this and actually I have to say you know I ended up having an emergency um c-section under anesthetic it was all very um very fast it was I can't remember the category of it but the the baby has to be out within 30 minutes it was very um, an emergency situation and that was all handled extremely well actually that was the point the sort of I guess it technically the worst point was to me the point that it became under control because I thought someone is doing this you know yeah yeah you're like well, professional, professionals are here they've recognized as a problem and they're gonna fix it and they can do that right mm-hmm. but I suppose all the hours building up to that when you're in agony and nothing was happening and you didn't know and you felt like you weren't being kind of looked after or listened to as well that's really hard yeah and it's incredible isn't it like how much 
time I have spent thinking about the birth and the whole thing from labor actually starting to the baby being out was like five hours. It was wow. very quick, but obviously the, the size of it in my head and in the book is big. Yeah. Um, and it's funny the way that to, everyone says this about babies, like it messes with your sense of time. Um, I keep sending my friends pictures of the baby being like, can you believe the size of this child? Can you believe <laughs> A horrible passing of time. It reminds us all how mortal we are. Um, but I remember every book that I had read um, about pregnancy and birth, the pregnancy was always like um, scooted over very quickly. Um, because while I was pregnant, I did read some books about pregnancy, even though I struggled with there being a baby at the end, obviously. Um, and it always seemed to be very quick. You know, they found out that they were pregnant, a little bit of morning sickness, and then they were huge, and then it was the birth. And to me, pregnancy lasted a million billion years it lasted so long and I think because I knew I was writing it all down I was so inside my head with it as well um but obviously now looking back I think oh I was pregnant for 10 minutes maybe um it's funny it really does mess with your sense of time mm. but then I think that's you know this is really fascinating because it that breaking that rule about when you should write a memoir it means that you do get a very a very visceral a very intense and quite a kind of extended account of what it means to be pregnant to have a baby um, to go through the process of kind of giving birth to a baby and then those sort of early months in a way that yeah a lot of books otherwise would maybe a chapter on it and sort of you know move into it like that so yeah I think it just kind of stopped me from mocking myself because I think that's what I would have done I think if I hadn't sort of made these notes and stuck so closely to the notes I think now looking back at the pregnancy I would kind of make fun of myself a little bit as we all do looking at our younger selves not that it was that long ago Mm. but I would think can you believe that I was anxious every single day of that pregnancy and then the baby was absolutely fine how silly of me but it wasn't silly. It did not feel silly at the time. It didn't feel silly at all. But I think we do that. We look back at, you know, I thought about myself as a teenager being so, I would even say melodramatic about things. Mm. Certainly didn't feel melodramatic at the time. Um, and I do write in the book about, you know, my various struggles with mental health that I've had through my life and how I do look back on those times and think, oh, I knew nothing. I didn't have any problems back then. What a silly overdramatic girl I was but it really didn't feel like that at the time and I think we all do that and I I understand and I do the same thing but I think it's really important to honor the people that we are in the moment that we're feeling something because it's real when we're feeling it it feels like a sort of um I want to almost call it like a trench memoir like it's in there it's in the trenches it's kind of at that time and I think it captures something yeah, it captures something kind of so important. We're going to move on to um, our main questions now. I'm going to get a little bit of information about what you've been reading and listening to recently, Kirsty. Um, so could you tell me about a couple of books that are currently on your bedside table? Yes. Now, I will also have a confession slash caveat for these. So two <laughs> books that are on my bedside table. Um, I have Strager by Johanna Lickie-Holm and Space Crone by Ursula K. Le Guin. Now, I will say, the question was, that are on my bedside table, not that I am reading. Very clever. You caught us <laughs> yeah, out. Because I thought, oh, no, you're <laughs> going to ask me what they're like. and You're going to ask me to talk intelligently about these books. Both of these books, I am desperate to read. They are beautiful. They have stunning covers. They just look amazing. They're so my cup of tea. I have not even cracked the spines. They're just purely there for aesthetic reasons, well, right? Like I would like to think that I'm going to read. No, I am going to read them. I am. But um, I'm very tired. I'm very tired. Um, I can understand. Yeah, yeah. I can understand. Exactly. Well, maybe then this is this is interesting. It makes it kind of uh, more intriguing, I think, for our for our listeners. Can you tell me what attracted you about these particular books then? Why they're on your bedside table waiting? Yeah, absolutely. It? So The Space Crone um, is a book of essays by Ursula Le Guin, who obviously we all we all love we all love her she's brilliant um and also I, lo- I love essays I'm definitely in like an essay short story um time mm-hmm. in my life at the moment so I'm very very excited to read this um I've always loved her and one of the um proudest moments of my writing career is that she blurbed my first novel I have no idea how this came to be Amazing. incredible I know I sometimes think that's an incredible achievement like Sometimes wow. I think, wow, you know, when I'm sitting there and I've just had a rejection for something and I'm like, oh, I'm such a loser. And then I think, well, Ursula Le Guin read my book and she liked yeah. it. So, <laughs> 
that's like that's the kind of thing you kind of put on your gravestone it's so brilliant I know I know so yeah I'm really excited about that I just but I guess I'm a bit afraid of the book because I just think she was so smart and so fascinating I'm like am I gonna Mm. understand this and I'm sure she's gonna have written it in a way that we can all access but yeah um I'm looking forward to it and I've heard brilliant things about it the other book Straga um is by an author who I'm actually going to be on with at the Edinburgh Book Festival in August and it looks great and it's all about witches but um quite it looks quite different to the other witchy books which I have also loved um which are out just Mm -hmm. now in that it looks very um modern feeling it's a very beautiful book little hardback gorgeous cover um it looks really really exciting and quite again quite like embodied quite body-ish um, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, and the prose looks very strange and twisting in a way that I really, really enjoy. So I'm excited. That's intriguing, because I think it's translated by Saskia Vogel, isn't it? Yes. And she, she's, I mean, she's an excellent translator, but also she is an author in her own right. And she does write very brilliantly about bodies in her own fiction, I think, and in her nonfiction too. So that's an interesting pairing as well. I wonder, like, particularly, maybe she was um, particularly interested in translating this volume if it's got that sort of element yeah whoever chose that pairing like very well done because um I think that's a really good combination and I think that is a wonderful thing when it comes to translation I think if the the translator has similar concerns and interests I think Mm. that's just such a wonderful combination because I think translation it's a very difficult process and it's almost like a co-writing um I think that's really fascinating so I'll be interested to speak to the author and kind of see what the experience of being translated was like um I'm very excited to to read both of them Uh, meanwhile I'm just reading a lot of uh, domestic thrillers which are extremely enjoyable (laughs) and I have to say like see trying to write escapist fiction Mm. escapist fiction is not something that I can do but I think it's a very difficult balance because you have to get Mm. it just right because I don't like um books that talk down to me or make me feel like they think I'm an idiot so you know books that kind of over explain things or tell you things five times I think yeah all right I get it but then you also you want these sort of element of familiarity but with a twist I actually think it's very difficult and people can be quite scathing about escapist fiction or mainstream fiction or supermarket fiction whatever we want to call it um mm. but I think it's incredibly difficult it's not something that I could do I actually tried to write a Mills and Boone once um just for fun <laughs> failed miserably it no it's work. hard it's really hard <laughs> because you have to hit certain beats but then yeah. you also can't do it exactly the same way that someone else has done it so I think the same about you know a lot of these domestic thrillers the the beats are the same you know there's there's mm. a woman in North London and her husband's got a secret and blah 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 you think it's going to be the same, but they are all different. And I think that's really yeah. hard to get right. So um, as much as I think the two books on my bedside table are going to be very um, mind opening and will really teach me new things. I'm also learning quite a lot from um, this very commercial fiction. Can you recommend one of those sort of domestic thrillers in particular that's really grasped you recently by putting you on the spot? I will say Nikki French, you know, everybody knows Nikki French. Um, Classic. Yeah, and they, they just never get it wrong. Um, so yeah, that's definitely one. That's good. I don't think we've ever had Nikki French recommended on the podcast. Next up, I think you're going to talk about a couple of TV shows that you've been watching as well. Right? Yeah, and again, I'm tired. <laughs> They're not highbrow TV shows. In fact, what my wife and I have been watching um, is The Good Wife. I love that show. We've actually seen it before. We we watched it years ago and we have been re-watching it. We started in January and we are now on season Mm. five. That's how much TV watching time we get. That's dedication. That's dedication. We have time to watch like... (laughs) maybe two to three episodes a week. So like we don't get a ton of TV, TV watching time. Um, just like she has a very busy job, you know, the baby and everything. So we've been rewatching that. And yeah, season five is the best one. It is so good. Like I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't caught up on this show from 20 years ago. Season five is where it really starts to come together because I think when it started, uh, what would you call it? Like a, an RT procedural. So I really, really love when someone takes something that we kind of think we know what to expect, like a procedural, because the way that Hannibal starts out, the way the good wife starts out, it's like a crime of the week. 
Um, so there's a different mystery every single week and it kind of gets wrapped up and then there's a little bit of an overarching story but not really and then it becomes more and more complex as it goes on and they kind of do away with that crime of the week format and I feel like it went, now we're in season five of The Good Wife it's really ramping up and all the characters from the previous seasons are all coming back in and you see yeah. things happen that have been set up like two seasons ago I think it's so good. Yes, it's all starting to kind of come together and knit itself into something much more interesting. Yeah, and it? I think you get, it's amazing because you get the satisfaction of having your sort of like a short story effect, like a little, mm. oh, here's a full story within this episode. But then you also get like the joy of reading a really, really long novel where things pay yes. off that have been set up ages and ages ago. So I would love yeah. to be able to write like that. And I absolutely cannot. Um, but I just... I'm very glad that others can. <laughs> so we've been, we've been watching The Good Wife and loving it. So if I'm allowed to have two, I really, really want to talk about this other TV show, which I'm not convinced anyone except me has seen in a long time. I certainly haven't. <laughs> no, and I hope you didn't watch it because it's <laughs> terrible. But I love it, um, which is a show called Scream Queens, not the Ryan Murphy Scream Queens. It's a reality show from 2008. And I recently watched it and... It's a reality show, kind of like um, America's Next Top Model, except the prize is that you win a role in one of the Saw films. And I found the show so fascinating. I've never been a reality show person. I never saw, actually, the first reality show I ever saw was uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. And that was only when it got to like season seven or something. So I came very late to reality TV. So I didn't kind of know this format. I wasn't familiar with it at all. And I found it so kind of fascinatingly awful because we forget I think the early 2000s or the I guess the mid 2000s was such a different time and I think unless you live through it it's hard to explain and it kind of brings me back to the unfamiliar a little bit because the misogyny and the kind of we I don't you can't even really call it slut shaming it's like femininity shaming because I think women at the time were really, really encouraged to be hyper-feminine and hyper-sexualized, but then were immediately shamed for that. You know, if we think about who was big at the time, like Paris Hilton, we we really encouraged her, or Britney Spears, be, be so feminine, be so sexualized, be so beautiful. But then it shamed them for those exact things that we were demanding that they be. And I feel like this show is a great example of that. And also the kind of performative bisexuality was such a huge thing in the 2000s you know and as a, a bisexual woman growing up in that time it was so strange it was such a strange time and I recently um, did an event um, at the Glasgow Film Theatre where we had a screening of Jennifer's Body and then we had a discussion about queer horror and I hadn't seen Jennifer's Body since it came out and I didn't like it at the time at all I thought it was terrible I thought it was trashy I thought it was pandering to pervy teenage boys and I could not have been more wrong it is a brilliant film and it's so queer and so dark and so aimed at women it's so aimed at like a queer female audience which it just was not how it was marketed at the time and I feel like what fascinated me and obsessed me about this screen queen show is it just really sums up what a weird and like homophobic and misogynist time it was and I think at the time we all thought we were really open-minded we thought we were really yes. feminist and really queer friendly and like we were it's so interesting because only a couple of episodes ago Carolina Donahue and I had a sort of brief conversation about sort of touching on so much of this because her new novel is set in that exact period the early 2000s a very very weird era I think like you say if you maybe didn't live it you weren't you can't quite understand how it sort of came to be because also it was a kind of period where people didn't talk about being openly feminist like young women didn't talk about being feminist in the way they do today it was still a quite a dirty word in an odd sense yeah and as, as a teenager you know I was very into Riot Girl I was very into writers like um, Elizabeth Wurzel and Susanna Kaysen so you know they kind of sad it's called sad girl lit now and I loved it and I still love it I still absolutely love it and I feel like they all spoke about feminism as quite aspirational you know I was very into singers like Fiona Apple, Tori Amos it was so aspirational so to me like feminism was cool it was really cool but then you know I went to uni and it was the 2000s and like you say 
it was not cool. It was not encouraged. It was, yeah, it just was not seen as, as being aspirational. Um, exactly. I always now. remember feeling like it was something that had happened and we were kind of beyond it. And so, I, I mean, I remember sort of, you know, reading books about feminism, about feminist literature, about feminist theory, but it seemed like something in the past and I wasn't expected to need it in my day-to-day life as a young woman in the early 2000s. Very odd, right? Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that zines seem to have made quite a comeback um, well, maybe they never really went away. Um, but I've seen a lot of people are still making, you know, like old school, writing them, photocopying them. Of course, there are things that you can do online, but it's different. It's such a different vibe. And I think it's really interesting that a lot of the aesthetics and the sounds, even a lot of bands that are coming out lately sound so Riot Girl to me. And I think there's a reason that we keep kind of going back to that era because it was it was a really beautiful time. And I do think there was you know some downsides to it like it was pretty white at the time um so I I like that it's opening up a bit more and it's more inclusive now but yeah it's it was just such a weird little blip (laughs) it was a strange time (laughs) so this show yeah it really fascinated me I don't particularly recommend that anybody watch it I was obsessed with it um but mostly that it made me think god it's like it's like going in the wayback machine and looking at old websites um that it's just this strange strange little microcosm this little like moment in time that it's very hard to explain I'm sort of fascinated by it. maybe I'll end up writing um a well book exactly then as well. maybe there'll maybe there's a book in this this is the beginning of your interest our shall be back in just a moment selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes, and I've been talking to Kirsty Logan about the weirdness of the early 2000s. Next up, Kirsty, could you tell me about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way? Yes, and I've cheated again and picked two, <laughs> but I'm going to talk I've about them together. There's a, bit of a, there's a bit of a theme here, Kirsty. <laughs> I'm very indecisive, very indecisive. Um, so the two that I have chosen are Kissing the Witch by Emma Donoghue and Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. I'm going to talk about them together. Um, probably people are familiar with them. Kissing the Witch is a book of short stories of lesbian retold fairy tales. And Fingersmith is a novel, fantastic novel um, by Sarah Waters, a historical fiction book and the reason that they made me think about feminism in a new way is that they made me think about relationships between women in a new way which of course is one only one aspect of feminism but I remember there were two of the books of which there have been several that made me think oh I didn't know you could do that I didn't know you were allowed to do that and I read both of them um when I was very young, actually, kind of in the, the early 2000s, <laughs> around that same time. So there was some good stuff. There was some good stuff at the time. Um, around that time, again, when there was all this misogyny, all this kind of performative queerness that, like, you're allowed to be a queer woman, 
but only if it was hot for boys and only if boys were looking and sort of approving of you. Both of these books were a million miles away from that. And it was not to do with the male gaze and it was not to do with performing um, in that way. It was They were about intimacy and they were about the real relationships between women. And they weren't kind of idealized. They're not like, oh, if you're a woman with a woman, everything's just going to be perfect and effortless. Like there are still struggles and there are still miscommunications and complications. But I just thought, oh, I didn't, I didn't know I was allowed to do that. I didn't know I was allowed to write about female desire and bodies in that way. And I just, again, I still read them and I still find them as incredible as ever. Um, I must have read Fingersmith three or four times. And every single time I think, how did she plot that? It's so clever. It's so good. Um, So yeah, both of those books, it just made me open up what was possible. And I think that that's, one of the great responsibilities and privileges of, of a, being a writer or writers, I think it's to, to show what's possible, um, to explore what's possible, because we might say, oh, people can decide that for themselves. And yes, they can. Perhaps I was very unimaginative, but I just didn't know. I needed permission. And my permission was just seeing someone else do it. I thought, well, if someone else has done it, why can't I do it as well in my own way? Why can't I bring my own experience of my body and my desires and um, my place in the world? I can do that as well. Um, And also that it doesn't have to be confessional. Um, There was a real thing for like confessional writing at the time, which I, of course, as a dramatic teenager, very much partook in, (laughs) very much enjoyed. Um, and weirdly don't seem to enjoy now that I, I can I can write memoir. I like have to pretend it's not about me. But at the time I loved writing about myself. And it also made me think, oh, you can you can layer this in metaphor. You can layer this in the fantastical. You can put fairy tale on it. You can make mm. it set in Victorian times. But it can be about now and it can be about your feelings and your experiences now as well. So they just really opened up possibilities wonderful I was also thinking a little bit because Emma Donoghue in particular the reimagined fairy tales which obviously has a long sort of history of some very illustrious writers working in that area amongst them sort of people like Angela Carter Virago favorite Um, but I was also thinking about the recent Virago volume Furies which was published earlier this year to celebrate 50 years of Virago feminist publishing and you've got a story in that haven't you Kirsty Wench and I just was fascinated to know a little bit more I mean I've been reading that and really very interested by this idea of reclaiming these names these kind of you know names that particularly have a kind of quite a sort of you know misogynistic quite sexist kind of um notions around them did you get to choose which name you chose for your story were they sort of all up for grabs and everyone went in and went for the ones they want or were you given a a particular name to 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 work with well funny story I don't know if I'm allowed to tell this story you may have to edit this out if I'm not allowed to tell it when when I was asked to contribute a story, all the words at that point were up for grabs. Um, okay. And I actually chose Siren and I was going to write about, because I've written about the sea a lot and I've written about mermaids yeah. and selkies. So I was going to do a sort of very um, like carnivorous mermaids, but like mm. queer carnivorous mermaids kind of story. But I hadn't started writing the story yet. And I got this very apologetic email from the editor saying, I'm really sorry. One of the other writers has gone ahead and written a siren story and it's very much tied to the word so like would you mind at all choosing another word and I was like no of course I haven't started the story yet completely fine so I chose wench instead because I had just written now she is witch I was my head was very much in kind of middle ages and I wanted to explore Mm. that more and then now that the book is out I know who stole my word (laughs) (laughs) and it was Margaret Atwood (laughs) Well, if anyone's allowed to steal your story, come on. You know, know. it's got that's I feel like that's another badge of pride though that you should wear. <laughs> I know, I feel like surely she owes me a favour now. <laughs> but um, and her story is very, very good, so I don't begrudge it. But I thought that I thought that was very funny. Um but yeah, so my, my head was very much in the Middle Ages. Um and again, I I guess my head because I had just watched Scream Queens and like my head was very much in this sort of like performative queerness aspect um that women were sort of expected to be to be sexualized but then were shamed for their sexuality so actually that's what I ended up doing except in the middle ages because I did think that's one of those things that never seems to change you know one of my things that I've realized and doing all this historical research is things change a lot of things change in the world but 
they also don't change. <laughs> the world doesn't change. People don't change that much. Um, so I ended up writing a story about a love affair um, between these two girls, two young girls, um, teenagers at a sort of holy, holy place, at a sanctuary. Um, and they end up falling in love and having this, um, not, I was going to say chaste. It's not really chaste. They're super horny. Um, you know, as a teenage girl, like similarly, I was super horny, but I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't allowed to be. I wasn't, I didn't feel in control of my sexuality. I thought I was in control of my sexuality, um, but I, <clears throat> I absolutely was not in control of it. Um, so similarly, they're the same. They're full of, they're full of desire. They're full of rage. They're full of all of these things. And again, I think particularly the emotions of, of young girls and the emotions of teenage girls, probably all teenagers. I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I have only had the experience of being a teenage girl myself, but I think we tend to very much belittle anything connected to teenage girls. The things that teenage girls like are rubbish, you know, like um, the Beatles now are sort of seen for like muso boys, but at the time teenage girls were Beatles fans. They were the ones going to the concerts and screaming and fainting and doing all that stuff. But because teenage girls like it, it must be trash. It must be silly. It must be pointless. Whereas if boys like it, it's better, sort of more worthy somehow. Um, so I really wanted to write about that, the way that teenage girls are sort of belittled and not taken seriously, but also are sort of seen as this site of great danger. They're something that can, you know, we have the phrase jailbait, um, which hopefully is not a phrase that people use anymore. But again, early 2000s, it was certainly one that got used a lot. Um, as if they are enticing you, as if they have some sort of nefarious scheme to to enact this plan. Yeah, yeah that they're they have. the danger. They're the not danger. The other, not yeah. the people around them, right? And that, you know, all, if you read about um, possession, a lot of stuff to do with witches was all around teenage girls, young girls, as if their their whole bodies and their whole selves are so precious, but also so dangerous. Just this sight of incredible risk and danger. Um, so the whole story, yeah, revolves around sort of the bodies of these teenage girls and how they attempt to control their own, own, own bodies and how they can't and it, they're controlled. It's beautiful. I love that story. I thought they were, I mean, I'm, I think the collection is fascinating. It's wonderful to see different people sort of taking things on, but I was very, I was very taken by your story in particular. Um, next up, could you tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you particularly admire? And again, I think you've chosen, chosen two. I can't help myself. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I can't help myself. Um, I've chosen two, but I'll be brief. Um, so my first one is Tove Janssen, um, best known as the author of the Moomin books, um, who is just absolute goals. Like just Google Tove Janssen, like just every I feel like single every thing. photo of her should just be captured at absolute cost. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if I was ever going to make like a life goals mood board, it's just yes. pictures of Toby Anderson. <laughs> that's it. Like that's all I want in life. Um, I just think she's just fabulous. Absolutely fantastic. And one thing that got me really, really interested in her is that I read, I was in Finland a few years ago on a residency and I read a book called Moominland Midwinter, which I really loved. And then I read this analysis of it and Toby Anson didn't say this, so I can't say for sure that this was the plan, but I, I enjoy this interpretation, which the book is about um, Troll, um, who would usually hibernate through the winter, waking up in the winter and finding it very frightening and cold and scary and full of unfamiliar things. But then actually realizing that winter has its own beauty and winter has a less obvious beauty than summer, but it still has beauty and it still has warmth and excitement. And I had read this as a queer awakening. And there's a theory that it's about this kind of queer awakening that at first, when you emerge from the kind of heteronormative world, it's very frightening and you don't know anyone. You don't know what you're supposed to do. You can't understand anything. It all seems very frightening and, and, and unfamiliar. But then you realize it actually has its own beauty. And some may say a greater beauty and a greater um yeah, just a greater, a greater feel and something that you can be at home in, even if it didn't feel like that at first. And who knows if that's true, but I enjoyed um, reading it that that's way. That's a lovely reading of that book as well, because I think that that book is an interesting one. It, it comes up. I've often heard people who are great fans of her work always sort of often talk about this as being a, a, a sort of gem amongst the collection, right? It doesn't necessarily hit all the usual notes, but it does something very different with it. And I think that depiction, it's been a while since I read it, but that depiction of the sort of loneliness and the fear at first is very visceral and very kind of, it's very real. And like, but like you say, it then has this wonderful 
um, it transforms into something else and something very beautiful. Yeah, and the women characters do sit on that border between cute and scary. Mm. I remember I loved Moomin as a child, but also found it quite frightening. Um, the characters are they're quite uncanny. Um, and actually, the baby now is very into Moomin. Um, we haven't watched the TV show yet. We've got some of the books and we've got a little um, about six inch high Moomin troll little nightlight, um, nice. which baby is obsessed with and goes, Moom, Moom. And that means <laughs> <laughs> I want Moomin troll. Um, and I think that's really interesting because, you know, what what is it about these characters that there's something so, I don't want to say visceral, but there's just something in them that seems to speak to so many different generations of children and even having not seen the TV show and really only seeing just one book um, about these characters, baby is just so fascinated by them. And I, I think that's really interesting because I remember feeling the same way, feeling so drawn to the characters, but also a little bit afraid. Um, well, I wonder if that, for, for me, that's often the sign of a great children's book, right? And I think, to you know, way back through the ages, back to like sort of original fairy tales, there's always, you have to almost have that hint of darkness. And some of the best children's books, the ones that don't, they're not sort of all cutesy and deal with just the, you know, wonderful things in life. They bring in something darker, they bring in scariness, because I think then maybe it's sort of the idea of setting something in sharp relief to the other or children love but I think children like to be a little bit scared as well sometimes yeah. well I think you know even the youngest children know that that's false they know that mm. presenting a world where everything is perfect and effortless and nothing ever hurts and you're never hungry and you're never tired they know it's false you know even little children who can't necessarily articulate this they know that if you fall over and graze your knee yeah, your parent can come and cuddle you and tell you it's okay and put a plaster on it. It still hurts. And if you do it again, it's going to hurt again. And nobody can protect you from that. Nobody can stop you from being hurt in your life. So I think children understand that. And I think um, that's why you can't patronize a child. You have to be, you know, you don't want to um, traumatize them and sort of scar them with terrible things, but also pretending like everything's easy and nothing ever hurts. That's not real either. Um, it's false in its own way. It is it? false. Yeah, I was a very spooky child, so I definitely liked them. Um, there was, again, like, <laughs> kind of late 80s, early 90s, there was loads of, like, horror for kids. Um, you know, I loved The Addams Family. I loved Return to Oz. There was a series of books called The Little Vampire that I loved. I loved The Point Horror. All of these things I really, really loved. Um, and I, I think still quite a lot of horror for kids, so I'm excited to to explore them. Um, but my other person that I want to mention um, is actually a friend of mine um, who is called Heather Parry, and she's a writer. She just had a novel and a short story collection out. Um, and she's very, very inspiring to me in terms of her writing, which, again, it's very linked because it's very queer, it's very embodied, um, it's very dark, very sinister, her novel um, is, was very inspiring to me as a writer um, because it's, it's based on a true story about a German doctor who became obsessed with um, a young woman who had TB and she died and he took her body and mummified it and kept it for many, many years, um, which is a true story. And apparently it's told as a romantic story, a story of love beyond death. But there's no evidence oh, yeah. that she I mean, loved him. That's what we all really want. Out <laughs> yeah, there, that's right? what we want. Yeah, TV and then to be mummified by a weird doctor. By like some <laughs> dude that we probably didn't even really know. <laughs> so weird. Wait, isn't he it? wasn't even her doctor. No, I think he was her doctor. But I mean, there's no evidence that she loved him or liked him. <laughs> like she knew him, but he was presumably like. I'm not even convinced they spoke the same language, actually. So I, I don't think they had oh some kind God. of deep connection. Yeah, but the greatest again, love story ever, right? <laughs> that's how it's told, weirdly. Like, that is how it's told, is like this great love story. Wow. Imagine being loved so much that someone would steal your body and keep it for decades. Um, which, again, doesn't that just speak to what women are expected to, to be or to do? Yeah, and I think, um, you know, as a writer... That's a bold thing. That's a bold thing to write about. Um, so I really admire that. So I actually, although I do admire people like Toby Anson, who in my mind are these sort of like goddesses up on pedestals, I also do admire my peers. I admire people that I know, people that I see every day. Um, my wife, my mum, these are people that I really admire and really get so much inspiration from. Um, you know, now that I'm a parent, basically anyone I know who's got kids, I just like 
bow down <laughs> how it's okay you convince me you can have the two of them I'll, okay, let, you, I'll let you keep both of them just for, <laughs> just this once <laughs> and finally today Kirsty, um I'm gonna ask you to name the Virago book that you most regularly recommend to others we're doing we added this question because it's the 50th anniversary of Virago they've chosen uh, various golden apples amongst their books tell me about your golden apple what is the Virago book that you most regularly recommend to others I, I say the you. Virago book but you I have know. chosen two which is I am so sorry for the way that I am. Um, so yeah, I chose two, but I'll, I'll be brief. So I chose, again, a sort of an older book and then a much newer book. So I chose The Hours Before Dawn by Celia Fremlin and Chouette by Claire Oshetsky, both of which are about motherhood in very, very different ways. And again, much like the Sarah Waters and um, Emma Donoghue books, really just blew apart how I thought about things. And what I thought was so beautiful about the hours before dawn is I thought that it conveyed in a way that I'm not sure anything else has the feel of kind of being awake with the baby in the small hours and that kind of feeling of like beautiful, awful exhaustion. Like I don't think I've ever been so tired, but there's a kind of beauty in it. Um, apart from me really is quite nostalgic now for those hours before dawn, those times of being awake in the middle of the night with the baby. Well, I suppose it's a different type of awakeness to that you've ever experienced before, right? When you think about awakeness before, then it's either because you're suffering from insomnia or you've been out all night, I don't know, at a party or something like that. But this kind of very intimate personal time with a baby and being there in the world with them must be entirely different to everything else you can think of. Yeah, and it's, I mean, at the time I wouldn't have said I enjoyed it, of course. I would be like, I want to go to sleep, I want to go to sleep. Um, but yeah, I do, I look back on it with this sort of, like, I want to say a golden gleam, but it's not a golden gleam. I know the exact colour of it, which is the colour of the streetlight outside the window in the front room, this sort of, like, yellowish. So, like, the rain would be coming down, you know, it'd be sort of three, four in the morning, completely dark. The rain's coming down, kind of making this golden shimmer around the the light and holding this tiny little baby who refuses to go to sleep. And yeah, there's this really weird beauty in it. And what's so interesting about the hours before dawn is the way that she kind of becomes obsessed with the daily lives of the people around her. And I got to know a lot of stuff about the place that I lived that I didn't know before. Like I learned what time the streetlights went off in the morning. Um, at that point, they went off at 4.30, <laughs> which I did not know because why on earth would I know that? Um, and I knew which people left super, super early for work. I knew which people got home really, really late from work. Um, I saw foxes. I saw um, lots of different cats having various adventures. Um, and I just got to see lots of different things. Um, I got to kind of learn the world anew. So um, I feel like that book, um, although it's not it's not really about motherhood, it's actually like a murder mystery story, um, but it just conveyed that in such a beautiful way. Um, and Chouette is very different and very strange. And it's about a woman who has an encounter with an owl and then gives birth to an owl baby. And you can read it as quite literally the baby is an owl, or you can read it as, of course, a metaphor for having a child who is neurodivergent or who has behavioral issues or however you choose to interpret it. Um, and it's just so beautiful and so strange. And I feel like anything that's to do with the strangeness of, of parenthood, but motherhood specifically, um, is so fascinating to me because it's such a strange time. And I think there's a reason that there's this link between like body horror and motherhood, because it is a very... It's a body horror experience, but it's also so beautiful and wonderful and awful and kind of all these things at once. My friend said to me recently, so he was joking, but he said, you know, everyone says, everyone who's got a child says it's the most brilliant thing they've ever done and they absolutely adore it. But then also they hate it and they're exhausted. I mean, which one is it? And I was like, well, <laughs> it's both. Like, I'm sorry, it's both. Um, and I don't really know how else to explain that. It's like the most incredible, beautiful, wonderful thing I've ever done. And also it's the hardest and most awful thing that I've ever done. I think a lot of people can, can connect with that. Um, so and the book really conveys that. It really conveys the kind of anxiety and wonder of, of the whole experience. I think one, one of the phrases that we chucked around and um, when we were talking about, about the unfamiliar, about the memoir, was bliss and bewilderment. And that's that's kind of how I feel about it. And I think Chouette really gets across the bliss and 
bewilderment and the kind of wonder and terror. It is like a fairy tale. You know, you mentioned fairy tales. And to me, the whole experience of parenthood is very like a fairy tale. It's sort of very beautiful and magical and unreal, but then also very embodied and very kind of bloody. And um, you're very, your body is inescapable. Um, in and while you're talking, way. I'm thinking as well about um, ideas of the uncanny. I mean, even the way you were describing kind of being up early in the morning with the baby and seeing the world, you know, this is a world you recognise, but it's also seeing it anew, right? That kind of classic idea of the uncanny, that which is familiar, but is now unfamiliar. Obviously, that sort of picks up on the title of your memoir, these strange experiences. And I find myself very drawn to reading um sort of accounts of motherhood or mothering or parenthood that, that sort of lean into these in particular ways like you say whether it's through horror whether it's through sort of thrillers whether it's through something that picks up on the strangeness experience and I think you're right Claire's book is wonderful for that and she was a previous guest on this podcast oh. so you're in excellent company she was on it I think it was the last season um, when she when the book was published so there you go yeah. Well, that's a wonderful place, I think, to end with a couple of recommendations for brilliant um, Virago books, one old and one new, which is perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kirsty. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I've loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, everyone. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Kirsty Logan, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.